Hello, everyone, and happy Disabled Ace Day. As of the day, this podcast is coming out October 27th, 2021. It is officially the very first inaugural Disabled Ace Day. My name is Courtney. I have lived experience as a disabled woman. I'm here with my spouse, Royce. Royce is somewhat of an accessibility expert. And today we are going to talk about why it is so vitally important to discuss the intersections of disability and asexuality. So let's get into it. I suppose I might also add that we are a married couple, so Rice, that does mean that you also have lived experience as uh, someone who is married to a disabled woman. And Rice, have I ever told you exactly how cool it is that when we're out in public or taking a walk around the neighborhood that you actually walk uh, slowly at my pace and, and don't go way ahead of me all the time? Many, many times. Many, many times. That's something that I don't think anyone who does not have experience as a disabled person with mobility needs who, you know, travels slower than the average able-bodied person, that's something I don't think a lot of people really quite appreciate. So, um, disability pro tip, marry someone who does not yell at you for slowing them down. But in all seriousness, last week we talked a little bit about some of my own personal experiences with disability discrimination in LGBT spaces, but this week I want to home in a little bit and focus on the specific complications that exist when you live as both a disabled and an asexual person, because it really is a very tricky intersection. And that is why we are founding Disabled Ace Day. This is why this is so important. And the complications are really twofold, because not only is there a tremendous amount of ableism present in asexuality communities, but on the other hand, there is also a lot of acephobia that comes from disabled spaces, so it's really well and truly a double-edged sword, and there are very important reasons why this is the state of things and why both of these communities are so quick to try to distance themselves from one another But that leaves a lot of people, like myself, in the crossfire. So let's talk first about the ample ace-exclusionary language that happens in a lot of discourse surrounding disability activism. Because if you go on disability Twitter, if you follow a lot of disabled activists, if you follow our hashtags... It will not take long before you start seeing these broad, sweeping generalizations that predominantly revolve around disabled people being sexual beings. Truly, a lot of disabled activism revolves around sex. And there is a reason for this, and it is very important to examine that reason because disabled people are often completely desexualized. They are infantilized, and there is a deep, deep history around eugenics and other forced sterilization and just sort of a a cultural belief that had been present in history for many, many years And truthfully, given the pandemic and how quick people are to dismiss, you know, only only the people who are already disabled are going to die of COVID, that culture of eugenics is still deeply ingrained in our society when it comes to disabled people. So naturally, in response to this, disabled people are going to want to say, yes, we do have sex, we can enjoy sexual activity, we do have children, we want to have children, because of the very fact that in a larger societal scale, they are painted as either people who are 
you know, too young and childish to be interested in sex, or, or some may even take it so far as to say that some disabled people can't consent to sex, which is absolutely ridiculous. And then on the other hand, you actually have violences being said that disabled people should not be allowed to reproduce. But the problem with this comes, but the reaction to this very problematic history becomes itself an issue when the disability activism devolves into statements that I so often see. Statements like, yes, all disabled people enjoy sex because we are human. Taking away from the fact that you should never, ever paint any group of people as a monolith, right? We, we all say that, like, no marginalized community is a monolith. Um, any, anytime you're speaking on behalf of all people, you are automatically wrong. But that last little jab is something I see so often where you are equating sexuality to humanity. And this very becomes in its and this very much becomes a type of a phobia and it is rampant in the disability community because regardless of the context having or wanting sex should never ever be a qualifier for one's humanity but on the reverse end of things the asexual community is never any friendlier to the disabled community because we have a lesser known sexuality. A lot of people do not know what it means to be asexual. In fact, we're very often uh, called the invisible orientation. So anytime an asexual individual speaks out about their own experience, we very often feel this need to defend our aceness preemptively, and often this comes with qualifiers such as there's nothing wrong with us, there's nothing broken with our bodies, we're not disabled, there's nothing wrong with our brains that's causing this. And hopefully I don't need to point out why that's wrong, because disability is itself not something to be ashamed of. So you should not ever feel like you're in a place where you have to say, no, 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 but I'm not disabled. But we wouldn't be doing ourselves any favors to just say that a large portion of the ace community is ableist and leave it at that, because much like the disability side of things, there is a deeply rooted history that is causing the broader ace community to react and respond in this way. Asexuality as an orientation has been deeply medicalized and widely pathologized for years, and in practice this is still happening to asexual people on a much higher scale comparatively to other sexualities. Um, I'm, I'm sure it will come as little surprise to most of you that things like homosexuality used to be equated with mental illness back in pre-70s era. And for anybody with a bit of knowledge pertaining to psychiatry, you may be familiar with the DSM, or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and this is essentially a guidebook that many uh, psychiatrists use to keep track of and reference a variety of psychiatric conditions. And while the DSM, once upon a time, did list homosexuality as a mental illness, for example, the most recent DSM-5, the fifth edition, does still currently have a condition known as hypoactive sexual desire disorder, or HSDD, which many in the asexual community take to basically be a pathologized version of what asexuality is. 
And in practice, this means that many of us have psychologists, doctors, medical professionals of all kinds who may take our sexual orientation as something that is medically wrong with us, or even taking it a step further as something that needs to be fixed. And while we know in our hearts that our aceness is just as valid in orientation as homosexuality, bisexuality, heterosexuality, what have you, we are still being treated as though this is a medical condition on a much larger scale than any other sexuality in this the year 2021. So naturally, we're going to be sensitive to this and we're going to be angry, but it once again becomes a problem when we double down and dig our heels in and say, we're not disabled. There's nothing wrong with us. There's nothing broken that caused our asexuality because these can very easily bleed into ableist territory where we are seen as defending ourselves against being disabled as if being disabled were a problem, which it very obviously is not. So these are obviously huge, huge conversations that need to be addressed. The, both of these groups have deep systemic issues and a long history of oppression, but the response to that oppression in a modern context really puts the two groups at odds with one another. And naturally, we are going to fight for change. We are going to want to have our voices heard and our humanity acknowledged. But fighting for our own humanity should never come at the expense of someone else's. And at the end of the day, we are all fighting against the social concept of the normative default body. The default body in our modern society is white, male, cis, straight, aloe, middle class. And anyone who is in a marginalized community and doesn't perfectly fit in with that default accepted body is going to fight for the respect that they deserve. This is only right and natural, but it does none of us any favors whatsoever to try to make ourselves seem more palatable to outsiders by qualifying ourselves with, well, I'm not straight, but at least I'm abled. Or, yes, I might be disabled, but at least I'm allosexual. I'm still a sexual being. Because at the end of the day... All this really does is real tangible harm to members of the community who live at these intersections. And this kind of even goes back to our very first podcast episode where we were talking about the concept of this unspoken ideal where there is a perfect activist out there. There is an activist that by and large, whether explicitly stated or not, is the right person that the community by and large wants to be represented by. And the way things stand right now, this theoretical, ideal, disabled activists, the ones that get the most praise and attention, the ones who have their voices heard, are the activists who are very outspoken and comfortable in their allosexuality. But on the flip side, the ideal asexual activist is someone who is physically and mentally healthy. So where does that put all of us who are both asexual and disabled? And we have experienced harm from both sides of these communities, and yet neither side is fully willing to listen to our very real experiences because they're so quick to distance themselves from one another. So where exactly do we go from here as a community? I'm talking to the asexual community, I'm talking to the disabled community, and I am especially talking to those of you who are like me, who exist at the intersection of these two identities. Because we know that there's no such thing as an ideal activist, 
and that we're all just fighting for our own humanity to be seen. But how do we have our voices heard when the larger communities revolving around our, our dual identities are often seemingly at odds with one another? Because I personally have very often been told that I am not the right person to be speaking about asexuality. I have outright been told by many, many people online that I should not be the one talking on behalf of the asexual community. And it's kind of been proven to me time and time again that the asexual community at large is not ready to have this conversation and admit and own up to the ableism that is so rampant within it and to make real tangible steps to move forward and do better. And so after years and years of being told over and over again that I should not be representing the asexual community, I thought, all right, maybe people will be more receptive if I strictly stick to my own personal experiences. I will talk about things that I have seen, things that I have experienced, and I will claim to be speaking for no one other than myself, but oh my lord, did that go poorly. I swear to you, the reaction to me talking about my own personal experiences as a disabled asexual woman were so much more hateful than any time I tried to speak more broadly about asexuality as a concept. Is it time to finally talk about the article? Uh, yes. The article. <laughs> Let me take you back to the long, long ago time of June of 2021. <laughs> it seems like an eternity ago. My word. June, as many of you know, is Pride Month, so existing in the ace spaces that I do, I was, I was feeling the ace love, I was seeing a lot of positive uh, asexuality activism happening. I obtained my very first real asexual pride flag. I had just finished reading the book Ace by Angela Chen, which was the best book that I have read to date on asexuality. So I was just filled with all of this pride and joy. And I began using this really supportive atmosphere to try to once again start speaking out about the intersections of asexuality and disability. And around this time that I had begun speaking up again in the name of Pride Month, I had been contacted by a writer who was writing an article about medical bias and asexuality. And I had exceedingly high hopes for it because not only have, had I never been asked to speak about the intersections of these two identities before, uh, but the author herself is also asexual, and never had I been asked to do an interview with a fellow asexual writer. So I had very, very high hopes. And to her credit, it was, in my opinion, a wonderful article, especially considering the fact that I had been interviewed for several articles previously over the last six or seven years. And many of them have been utter crap. I had spoken at one point to a journalist for over an hour talking about the nuances of asexuality, the discriminations we face, what asexuality is and is not, and I ended up being like one throwaway line in an article about virginity, not about asexuality at all. So I, I have absolutely been horribly misrepresented in the past, but I had very high hopes for this article. And on the day this article came out, I read it and I thought it was the best, most well-rounded 
article that I had seen, and it was published on Bitch Media, who has a very good audience and reach. So I thought a lot of people are going to be getting really good, important information about medical bias and asexuality. I was really, really thrilled. But uh, then I started getting a, a few DMs on social media from people whom I do not know personally, who are in the ace community, who had words for me about how I represented myself and therefore the entire asexual community, and I was baffled. I was absolutely shocked because I did not know what I could have possibly said to upset people in this particular article. But then I did what no one should do, and I I went online and I tried to to read the comments. That was a mistake. And I was perplexed and disheartened to find an enormous percentage of the online ace community talking about not how bad the entire article was, Nobody, I, I didn't see anybody saying that, but uh, I saw people specifically talking about me and why I shouldn't have been interviewed for it and why I shouldn't have said the things I did. And it was, it was that bitch who had to go and talk about urine tests. So we will link the article in the show notes. So you can read the entire thing for yourself. But I will read a couple of quotes here, and I will also make abundantly clear that I was not the only one quoted in this article either. But I was the very openly disabled one who was talking about issues that caused me real financial harm as a disabled ace. So the article opens talking about the house episode. If you are asexual, you almost certainly know what the house episode is. If you are not, we don't have time to quite get into it today. We could probably do a whole episode about the house episode. But long story short, Dr. Gregory House of the TV show House... <laughs> basically proved that people cannot be asexual. If they think they're asexual, there's something medical wrong with them, medically wrong with them, or they're lying. No third option. And that really goes back to the real-world implications of our orientation being medicalized and pathologized. And so the quotes from me that were used were... As discriminatory as this is in fiction, it's really not too far from what I've actually experienced. Not only does it lead to fear and mistrust, but it does real tangible harm diagnostically and financially. And given some of the uh, international responses I saw to this article, I do feel the need to clarify for our international audience. We are in the United States. Hello, hi. We do not have <laughs> universal health care. Our health care is extraordinarily expensive. And yeah, there there is such a thing as nickeling and diming, even in the, <laughs> the the fields of medicine. So I I have had to pay just truly astronomical amounts in medical care over the years as many disabled people do. If you go online and search hashtag CripTax, you will start to see disabled people from all walks of life talking about exactly how much more money they need to spend as a disabled person than our able-bodied counterparts. And the author explains that I informed her that I need an above average number of x-rays in any given year because of my condition, and that I also shared with her that every single time I need to take a mandatory pregnancy test before I have an x-ray, because they will not give you an x-ray without that proof of not being pregnant, and yes, they make you pay for that test. And trust me, that adds up when you're doing that many times a year. 
And to really drill down how ridiculous some of these are, I have quite literally been in an office needing needing an x-ray on my period saying, no, no, I, I have not had any kind of intercourse in over a month. <laughs> like, you, you can absolutely say, you know, I'm a virgin and they will not believe you. <laughs> there, there is nothing you can say to these doctors, especially when a lot of our medical facilities are actually religious organizations and they are run by, you know, Christian corporations who care more about a theoretical unborn fetus than their patient. <laughs> but it, it truly does not matter what you say. They will not believe you and they will make you pay for that distrust. And I was just using that in the article as one example of, hey, this has a real financial impact too when we aren't believed by our medical professionals. And I, I said, and she quoted, I've quite literally been sitting in my doctor's office having difficulty breathing and urgently needing a lung x-ray to check for pneumonia while waiting on a urinalysis to come back and tell my doctors the obvious. It's humiliating to not be believed by the people I'm supposed to trust to oversee my health, but it's also tremendously expensive with all of these little costs throughout the year adding up. My disability has riddled my medical history with question marks, and not all physicians are prepared to diagnose or treat something so rare and under-researched. I've seen firsthand how harmful it can be when doctors try to pathologize your illness when they've run out of ideas. I don't want doctors to pathologize my illness, and I don't want doctors to medicalize my sexual orientation, but I find that the two often go hand in hand. It's exhausting. It is at this point that the author goes on to talk about some of the things we already mentioned earlier in this episode about the DSM about hypoactive sexual sexual desire disorder. And then she leaves off with another couple of partial quotes from me saying, Lane says they've experienced burdom. Bur and then she goes on to leave off with a couple more partial quotes from me stating, Lane says they've experienced burdensome biases from healthcare providers throughout their life, which has contributed to a culture of distrust in medicine when it comes to patients who are women and or exist within the LGBTQ plus spectrum. I personally thought it was beautifully said. That is not the end of the article. She goes on. It's very nuanced, very good. Talking about Avon, talking about the actual definition of asexuality, how it's the invisible orientation. She even mentions uh, the book Ace, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex, which is the book by Angela Chen that I had just recently read and also loved as, as of the time this article came out. She pulls quotes from the book. She pulls quotes from an asexual woman and a medical practitioner. She speaks a little bit to her own personal experience. So this article was not about me. And yet an enormous part of the asexual community online made it about me because there were these people with very large followings. There were private Facebook groups for the asexual community. Lots of people who were reaching lots of people were sharing this article with the caveat of like, oh, I wish that woman didn't have to go and talk about the urine tests. <laughs> How dare she? She's going to give people the wrong idea. I really wish ace people would stop giving people the impression that asexual people don't ever have sex because some of us do. And some of these comments ended up getting very, very aggressive. And just like I said earlier, like that bitch talking about the urine tests. <laughs> because being the invisible orientation, the asexual community is so terrified that outsiders are going to get the wrong impression of who we are and what the definition of asexuality is that if 
anyone senses even a hint of, oh, the Allos might take this and run with it in the wrong direction. Someone might not understand every single nuance there is about asexuality because of this one person's experience. We are absolutely prone to cannibalizing each other. And that is absolutely how I felt on that day because I started getting more and more DMs. More and more people telling me that I shouldn't talk about this. I'm going to give people the wrong impression. And then since it did have um, an international reach, I started seeing people in other countries who do have universal health care who started accusing me of outright lying, saying, if you tell them that you're not pregnant, they won't make you take these tests. Oh, trust me, I have tried that. I have absolutely tried that. And then it started getting very, very weird and very personal where I would see entire threads of people speaking about me and speculating on my own medical history. Um, I, I didn't specify my actual uh, diagnoses in this article because I didn't think I needed to, but apparently that was a mistake because everyone started speculating, you know, maybe, maybe she's not really disabled, or if she is disabled, maybe she just doesn't know how to represent herself to medical professionals. Maybe this is really her fault for not, uh, for not talking to healthcare providers and Clearly, she isn't representing asexuality in a correct light in this article, so she's probably misrepresenting herself to doctors, too. <laughs> and I'm on the doctor's side. Uh, they should be doing this, because... And it, it was very, very weird, because in this whole article that I thought was very good and was not about me, again, I was one, one experience of several mentioned here, why did it all boil down to me? I don't think I said anything wrong. That is my experience. That is something that has happened to me. I have... <laughs> my, my brain was all over the place then, and it still is now. Because at the end of the day, I just think the broader asexual community feels threatened by disabled representation. I have never once claimed that asexual people never have sex. I have never claimed that you should never give asexual people a pregnancy test. I was explaining this is my experience, this is one of my many experiences that is costly and humiliating. And somehow the ace community just absolutely dogpiled on me that day. And perhaps in part because this article was very large, it was widely read, perhaps that's the reason why I got as much hate as I did, but on that day, I felt so utterly and wholly rejected from the asexual community that I wasn't sure I wanted to speak about these things openly anymore, or really be a part of this community at all, a community that didn't seem to want me or value my opinions and experiences. And then Pride Month ended and July started. July, which is Disability Pride Month, in case you were unaware. And so right on July 1st, I saw the precise moment when my timeline was just thrill filled with happy ace content LGBT pride, everyone's valid, everyone belongs here, and then right on July 1st, I'm seeing, yes, disabled people have sex because we're human! <laughs> and let me tell you, that is jarring every single year. However, for as much as I felt like I was done, I wasn't going to do any more in this space on the day of that article and the week following it, I was, shortly thereafter, offered a seat on the Accessibility Committee for the Asexuality Conference, which this year took place online and in conjunction with World Pride in Denmark in mid-August. 
an opportunity that I was especially excited about because I thought I was uniquely positioned to help make the conference as accessible as it can be. Um, even though I didn't have nearly as much experience in virtual spaces, my uh, professional work in history and artwork and academics, I have been to many a conference before, and I know what has and hasn't worked in terms of accessibility, just as it pertains to my own lived experience. But I was also, of course, just very passionate about making sure that disabled aces are included in in ace spaces and that they have their access needs met in order for them to be able to participate. And I also have A. Royce, who is far more tech-savvy than I am and is very much um, an accessibility expert in digital spaces. So Royce, I think you are a really cool case and a very good ally because although you don't have any disability access needs of your own, you've taken a lot of time and care to learn about them and make sure that you implement accessibility in all areas of your own work. Yeah, so I'm a professional programmer. I generally work on front-end interface stuff. Several years ago, I was a part of a larger company working on their user experience team, and I ended up learning about web accessibility for a couple of different reasons. On one hand, if you start doing a lot of research into design, you will inevitably start to come across articles or studies that involve designing software for people with a variety of needs, whether that is keyboard accessibility or screen reader accessibility, or I once read a really interesting article about designing websites for dementia, which involves a lot of contextual information and uh, context clues and things like that that you wouldn't normally think of when navigating around a website. It's an interesting field, and it can get rather vast and intricate because there are so many different experiences to design for um, when you're talking about making something as accessible as possible. And this goes beyond just what we would think as, as normal, diagnosable disabilities. There's also designing for varying educations and languages and upbringings and cultures. And it's more about making things that are available and useful to people in general. So when we started looking at AceCon, I believe the first thing you showed me was the original plan for the website and the registration form that they were going to send out to people. And I took a little bit of time to look over it, to run a few auditing tools over it, and noticed a few fairly straightforward accessibility issues, which came from a variety of sources, from the writing styles to language around time zones to the infrastructure that being used that just wasn't flexible enough to accommodate the audiences that it needed to. Yeah, absolutely. And it it should be noted that, you know, there, there was some work uh, going on for the conference before I got brought on to be a part of this accessibility committee. So there were a lot of things that had already sort of preliminarily been done. And that long-term kind of ended up being part of the issue because having an accessibility committee is vitally important. Either a, a professional accessibility expert or a panel of disabled users from the community, um, or both is even better. But because of the fact that we were all volunteers and we were all over the place, we all had very different skill sets and some work had already been done, it ended up being that the, the accessibility committee was often put in a place of sort of needing to say no to things that were already done, things that people had already spent the time to do, but they themselves were not on the accessibility community. They themselves didn't have these access needs. So people were producing content that was not accessible and finishing it, which then put us in the position of needing to say, 
we can't use that. And that puts us in a very difficult spot socially when we know someone has worked very hard and, and put in a lot of time to get things prepared. What I would have liked to see and what I would prefer to see in any other accessibility committee situation is that the accessibility experts are involved in every level of the creation of the content for these events, because then someone can point out when there's an issue before all of this time is invested. And then we don't have to feel like we're the bad guys saying, hey, that thing you did is not good enough. Do it again. Or let's find someone else who can do this in a different way. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of accessibility work ends up being. I forgot to mention earlier that the other reason that I ended up learning a lot about the technical aspects of web accessibility is because I've been a part of more than one company accessibility overhaul, um, oftentimes in a point of technical leadership, if not design leadership, just from experience. And it is a lot of no marketing. You can't stylize your text in that way. It doesn't matter if that matches the company's brand's colors. There's a certain percentage of the population that can't see it. And then it's no development. You can't make controls in that way because they don't work on all the variety of devices that they need to work. It completely breaks the application for a certain subset of users. And it, to this day, I haven't seen a C-level accessibility lead at any company. I don't know if that role exists, but it does end up being something that gets shoehorned into a lot of projects, either because an individual somewhere starts championing it or the organization gets hit with a lawsuit. And unfortunately, threatening them with a lawsuit sometimes is the only reason uh, that they'll uh, listen to you. <laughs> So Royce and I working as a team along with several other fantastic members of this accessibility committee were really trying to make this conference as accessible as possible. And I think it did at the end of the day end up being more work for you and I than we thought it was going to be. <laughs> well, yeah, you expected to just be involved in a handful of accessibility meetings to go over conference details, and we ended up taking ownership of the website itself. I built and hosted that based off of existing designs. We critiqued and helped rewrite some of the information that was being sent out, were involved in a wide variety of internal chats, did some auditing of other tools and platforms that were wanting to be used. It, it ended up being quite a bit. It really did, and then any of you listeners who may have been at AceCon would have potentially seen me uh, speaking at the opening of the conference about some of our accessibility measures. Um, and I also hosted the panel on asexuality and disability, which, mind you, <laughs> this again, the, the ACE community just doesn't really care about disability. I, I did get to see some community polling about events they would be interested in, and let me tell you, content about disability and asexuality was low. Low, 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 low. But that was something that when I saw the poll numbers come in for that, I had to say, please, 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 let's still have <laughs> disability content at the conference, even though the community isn't polling for it. And I can't say I'm surprised to see the interest so low, but that's exactly why we need it. And this is not by any means intended to be a call-out episode, so I will be saying no names, and please don't ask around or try to get any personal details because the individual experience I, I had, the individual experiences I had with other volunteers is not the point. I am totally saying this just to illustrate the pattern of how disabled people are treated in ACE spaces. So Royce mentioned that we did do a lot of auditing of other platforms, and that was because this was a virtual conference, and naturally people wanted to try to sort of emulate the in-person experience and give people the ability to meet fellow aces and connect with others. 
And there was one particular platform that, by the time I came on, seemed like it was definitely going to happen no matter what, that they had already decided to use this platform. But it was egregiously inaccessible. So the company was called Gather, and it's sort of like a little virtual space. You get uh, a little sprite character that kind of looks like you know, an 8-bit video game character that you can control around in this virtual space. And then they use video chat so you can actually see the face of the person you're talking to if you get close enough to someone. And it is a really cute and novel concept, but it is not at all accessible. <laughs> Even before we had our accessibility meeting to discuss this particular platform, I had run an accessibility audit on it to see what potential issues there may be, and we saw a lot of them. <laughs> there were buttons that just did not appear to people who would be using a screen reader, for example, let alone the fact that screen reader users just could not navigate the space on their own whatsoever. And a lot of the issues we're seeing were lawsuit-worthy issues. <laughs> Companies have been sued for very similar, if not exactly the same issue, and we know that they are a, a direct violation of accessibility laws. <laughs> I also noticed when I went on that of their little uh, video game characters that you can pick when you go in, which you get no description if you are on a screen reader, so you are uh, completely unable to get details about what your character looks like when you're trying to select one. That was another issue. But they had a few different sprites who were using wheelchairs. They only had one sprite who's walking with a cane, which is my most frequently used mobility aid. Except uh, they made her a little old lady with white hair and a bun and frumpy clothes. <laughs> and her wrinkles. And it's like, oh, that's good. <laughs> there aren't any young people who walk with canes. And as part of this initial audit, um, I did pull up a screen reader. Now, I full disclosure, I am not a screen reader user. And I know that I am very much an educated outsider in that regard when it comes to accessibility. And the opinions of someone who is a regular screen reader user is going to be a lot more nuanced with that lived experience than me. And we did have a, a couple of different screen reader users on the committee, so I definitely wanted to run things by them as part of this. But for my little preliminary overview, I did pull up a screen reader, and not only could I not click many buttons and not see a lot of things, but um, the screen reader insulted me. It called me old female Courtney Lane <laughs> because old female was the description they gave the one sprite who had a cane. So that was good. Very gendered as well. Every sprite was male or female, and it only told you that information after you selected one, so you would just randomly select one if you couldn't see them yourself. And... Yeah, then once you were actually in the space and can't move anywhere on your own, then it would be like male or female, which was just also not very great for a queer-focused asexuality conference because we have a, a very large number of non-binary folks in our community. So that was also just like adding one other little nuisance on a pile of accessibility issues. And so naturally, as someone who was brought on as, as a member of the Accessibility Committee, I explained this is not accessible. This is horrendously inaccessible. And the response I kind of got back from non-Accessibility Committee members who were helping organize the conference was kind of, yeah, but is there something we can do to make it work anyway? And... Maybe this is my bad. Maybe right from the start I should have said no. <laughs> but it really seemed like they were trying to make it work no matter what. So I tried to say, you know, the absolute very, very, very least we could possibly do is have a team of volunteers. Because, you see, Gather has this thing called the follow feature, 
which they designed with sign language interpreters in mind, where a sign language interpreter could have their own sprite that is just sort of automatically attached to the person they're interpreting for, so you can move about the space sort of as a pair and not get separated, um, with one user controlling both sprites, basically. And while this would not have solved the problem, because there's still the issue of getting in and accessing the space in the first place, I said, well, if you absolutely insist on still using this, we could have volunteers ready to basically be sighted guides who can use the follow feature, but we need to have those volunteers on hand if we're going to do this. And it's still not ideal. It's, there's, there's still issues. And that was very much me just trying to be creative because I could tell that they were trying to justify using this by any means necessary. But then I kept adding, you know, we should be erring on the side of accessibility. We, we know this is not accessible. So if we proceed to use this service anyway, we know that we are excluding and discriminating against a certain percentage of disabled folks who would attend the conference. Like, we know this. You, you can't sugarcoat it. We would be willfully discriminating because I have brought this to your attention and you know this now. So for a little while, it kind of seemed, okay, we're not going to use the service, and we kind of dropped talking about it for a little bit. And I kind of thought it was all said and done, but then just a couple weeks before the conference, someone brought it up again and said, oh yeah, do we, do we have a stance on Gather? Are we going to use it or are we not? And I saw some people talk about, yeah, we are going to try to use this. And someone said something to the tune of like, oh, it's my understanding that we shouldn't have any necessary parts of the conference there, but if we just use it as a social space, then the accessibility committee thinks that that is reasonable. And I saw that and I had to pop in and I said, you know, I'm a member of the accessibility committee and let me emphasize for you that nothing is reasonable about this by accessibility standards. It is not reasonable. No, it absolutely is not. And so we, we kind of hit a compromise. I, I was sort of given the permission to contact this company and basically give them, you know, Royce and I, uh, we've done some accessibility consulting before. Coming from our, our two different experiences, we work really well together as a team in that regard. So we, we actually wrote up an accessibility audit and I got the permission to contact the company and say, hey, if you can't make this accessible, we're pulling out. Because I said, as well as other members of the accessibility committee said, we shouldn't be giving our money to a company who isn't accessible. And the response back we got from the company said, yeah, we know we're not accessible. We'd like to eventually fix that, but we, we aren't going to fix it by your conference time. And that was when the most frustrating accessibility conversation happened because they took that information and said, okay, what do we do with this? And a couple of different comments stood out to me because, well, one, I, I was asked, because um, I, I said, again, my recommendation is we do not use this. They aren't accessible. They know they're not. This is a lawsuit-worthy accessibility issue. And Disabled aces face enough discrimination, we need to make it clear that they belong in ace spaces and we will make this accessible for them. And I kind of got a, are you just saying that because of the email they sent you? Like, have you really been thinking about this the whole time or did you just have some hurt feelings? I was like, I, I felt downright gaslit in that moment, I was searching through two months of chat history to see everything I ever put in that group chat about Gather so that I could copy and paste them into this wall of everything I've said about Gather and how and why we shouldn't use them. And it's like, wow, they, no, I've, I've made it very, very clear, actually, that I've thought this the whole time. So... I don't know if it's disabled, or if it's because I'm disabled, or if it's because I'm a woman. I don't know if it's because I was the most passionate voice in the group chat, but um, that didn't sit right with me. And then the conversation became, well, I'm worried that we've put so much work into this conference, and if we don't use Gather, 
we're not going to have as much value and people aren't going to have as much fun and a lot of our hard work will be wasted if we don't use gather and so i i again i i just kept making my point saying you know you are willfully discriminating against disabled asexuals who might want to come to this asexuality conference including people who are screen reader users like people who we have on the accessibility committee <laughs> and luckily there were a couple people here and there who were saying like yeah i thought it was pretty clear that the accessibility committee didn't think this was okay it's like all right so a, cu a couple of you are listening <laughs> thankfully but then we got hit with the the hardest one that really 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 got to me where someone said you know even if only 99% of the people who come to the conference would benefit from using Gather, isn't that still better than no one being able to have fun on Gather? And and they <laughs> they they went on to phrase this as, you know, like, "Oh, I know there's a logical flaw before you guys get mad and start yelling at me, but I, I really just want to emphasize the fact that this is a really difficult decision to make. Both outcomes are negative. Either we discriminate against disabled people, or the abled folks don't have as much fun. The argument was particularly ironic when you consider that this was an asexuality conference, so it was a conference that was already being built around... 1% of the population. Right? We're we're we are the invisible orientation. The estimated 1% of the population in this conference is for us. Like, could you imagine a a pride event where people are like, "No, we're not going to include asexual folks because the asexual folks are going to bring down the fun <laughs> of everyone else." So we're just not going to let them because it's, it's better that the 99% of us have fun instead of the one. Like, could you imagine? That's, the thing is, like, yeah, if you want to go the utilitarian thought experiment of, you know, everything here is a lose-lose situation. So which lose situation actually benefits the most people? Like, the two are not equivalent. You cannot use the utilitarian thought experiment when it comes to human rights <laughs> because one is oh the abled folks don't get to hang out in this cool novel virtual space and the other negative is we are actively discriminating against a marginalized group of people it's not the two are not the same <laughs> but these arguments get brought up because the people making them are always a part of the majority of that utilitarian argument True. <laughs> True. <sighs> so at the end of the day, a lot of things did turn out relatively well. We did, at the end of the day, get a lot of things that the Accessibility Committee was gunning for. We did not end up using the Inaccessible Gather. We did have a disability and asexuality panel. And although there were some hiccups here and there, I think overall, given uh, the fact that this was completely volunteer run, none of us were getting paid, a lot of us were putting in a lot of time, and it was an international conference. Overall, I, I do think it ended up very, very good. But the people who attended the conference and loved it and felt so validated by it, and the people who were thanking us for taking disabled folks into consideration and prioritizing accessibility, they don't really know exactly how hard several of us disabled members of the community had to work in the background in order to make that happen. Some of it is purely time and energy, which will go into any volunteer effort, but some of it was also just pushback from abled organizers who don't understand how vital accessibility is. And then there was the whole, because in bear in mind, I I was the one emailing Gather back and forth. I, I sent them the accessibility audit. I laid out our terms. Hell, I even offered, I was like, if you want to pay us, we are accessibility consultants. And 
we'll, we'll whip this into shape for you. <laughs> like, here, here's our audit for free. If you want more, you can pay us. And they, of course, gave us the, like, we would like to be more accessible. And as a response of your email, we've had company-wide meetings about how we're going to implement asexual, or, asexuality, accessibility going forward. And I sincerely hope that they did actually change the systemic way they were implementing these measures. Like they told me, there's no way for me to know I don't work for them. We haven't checked back in on their website. No, we haven't checked back yet. But yeah, then another organizer who whom I had not spoken with uh, directly by this point kind of popped into the chat and said like, oh, why, why don't we have someone tell this gather story at the opening of the conference? And they just said it would probably be good for people to know, you know, all of the accessibility work we're doing, our decision behind not using this, since a lot of people thought we were going to. And since I was the one who initially ran the audit of Gather and said, no, this isn't accessible, I coordinated with a member of the committee who is a screen reader user to try to sort of like test, is there a way to make this work if we have the right volunteers? And since I was the one who was emailing Gather directly, I felt like I was the right person to do that. And so I just said, yeah, is that something you'd want me to talk about? I'd be willing to do that. And it wasn't a resounding yes either. It's It was kind of tone policey. It was kind of mansplainy. It was like... Because I said, I a lot of my activism revolves around asexuality and disability. So I can not only explain what happened with Gather, why we made the decision we did, but also explain that we are prioritizing accessibility. <laughs> and that's the heart of this, because disabled aces belong in ace spaces. And to that, they were like, yeah, I guess you can talk, but you you have to be humble about it. <laughs> You you have to be humble and make sure make sure that you say it right. And I was like, what is not humble about saying we're prioritizing accessibility? I genuinely did not understand. And I never once said that I was going to come out and be like, I'm the one who did this. I did that. I did that. And like, I not at all. My my proposal was I know the most about this situation because I did it. And I can say that the conference is prioritizing accessibility. And it very much felt like, hmm, are we sure this this disabled woman on the asexuality like accessibility committee is the right one to talk about this? So that was just like the last tiny little salt in the wound. But eventually they, they agreed. And I, I did speak at that opening, as I mentioned, and chaired the disability panel on that Sunday. So I guess we spilled a little more tea about that conference than I kind of intended to when we started this. <laughs> but I think in having these conversations, it's important to talk about not only the discourse online and the attacking members of our own community for talking about their own personal experiences, but also just how anytime something is made accessible, how hard someone who is probably disabled is working in the background to make that happen. And I want this also to be a reminder to any asexual organization or activist who is putting out ace content or hosting ace events to please prioritize accessibility. It is important. It is often legally required. <laughs> I hate that I have to say that, but if you don't want to get sued, make your shit accessible. <laughs> because this this conference was not the only asexual space or event that hasn't been accessible. I've seen many of them before, and every time I see it, I try to make a point to contact that person or organization and say, hey, please keep this in mind. And to their credit, many of them are very graceful and do try to to implement changes. But I don't want anybody to just assume that their presence online is accessible, especially if you have a website, even if you're using a website builder like Wix 
don't assume that just because you're using a builder that everything is accessible because it is not immediately accessible. And if you don't personally have the education necessary or the personal experience with lack of access, just please know that there is going to be a big gap in your understanding of this issue. And please seek out someone who can help you. Because disabled ace folks deal with so much discrimination and personal attacks that the last thing we need is to also be excluded from our online and, for that matter, our physical asexual and queer spaces. On that note, I think we're going to end this episode right here. This is a vast and sprawling topic, so no doubt in the future we will discuss asexuality and disability more, but I hope that these last two episodes have been illuminating for you. And if anyone out there, especially if you yourself are a disabled ace, if you are interested in getting involved in future disability volunteer initiatives, if you're interested in taking a leadership role in next year's Disabled Ace Day, since we do want to make this an annual event, please feel free to reach out to us. You can tweet at us at the Ace Couple, or you can email us at disabledaceday at theacecouple.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll talk at y'all next time.